Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love our show, share it with your friends and join us in the EU VC community syndicates at theeuropeanvc.com. Today, we're excited to host a special episode. We sat down with Shmuel, chairman and founder of Target Global, for a chat about the current market and realized we have to record this. So bear with us for throwing you into the deep, but we couldn't help but hit record when we heard Shmuel say this. First of all, panic. Panic immediately. Sell everything. <laughs> exactly. Time of a VC in a crisis is really not that valuable. What do you got to do? <laughs> you know? Everybody's going to find out how much free time you can have in your job right now. I'm happy we're still recording. I, everything I say is usable. Don't worry. <laughs> that is what we're finding as well. But before we start, let's hear a bit about Shmuel and Target Global. Shmuel is a founding partner of Target Global, one of the largest and most successful venture funds in Europe, with more than 3 billion euros under management. They invest in companies across all stages, from pre-seed to pre-IPO, and have backed global winners including Delivery Hero, Revolut, Auto One Group, Copper, Rapid, WeFox, Flink, Kazoo, and many others. Their portfolio includes 15 unicorns, 19 exits, and seven IPOs, a European force to be reckoned with. So listen up, Kashmir knows what he's talking about. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving it a review, and following us on LinkedIn. This episode is part of a special series on navigating the current market and is sponsored by Isma Capital, one of Europe's leading fund of funds. We thank Isma for their support in making this episode possible and being a strong supporter of the EU VC community. If you haven't yet connected with them, make sure to do so. You couldn't wish for a better LP partner. Well, it's so exciting to hear you reflect on this crisis, if we're ready to call it that, comparing it to 2008. I'm curious if you would say, you know, drawing out some lessons learned for the emerging managers and other VCs in Europe out there right now, what would be your main advice to the rest of the crowd? First of all, panic. Panic immediately. I love it. Sell everything. <laughs> yes, especially to Shmuel. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, in the press. So first of all, you should panic. Absolutely panic. Again, because it's very hard to anticipate what's going to happen, right? And there is the obvious advice in a crisis, preserve capital and, you know, all the usual things that everybody writes and all those very thoughtful letters. I think it's all probably true. And you should raise when you can, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the least advice that I've been trying to give people is to be responsibly aggressive. It's a good time to be responsibly aggressive. The market is shifting. It has a lot of risks and a lot of opportunities. You know, good people are going to come out to the market. There's going to be repricing of a lot of things. There's going to be, within this crisis, going to be a lot of opportunities. And being a venture back... We lost two I think I identified the problem. I think it was a networking fuck-up. Hey, sorry about that, guys. Uh, no worries, no worries. Your time is uh, yet more valuable than ours, so it's on you. Time of a VC in a crisis is really not that valuable. What do you got to do? <laughs> yeah. you know? Everybody's going to find out how much free time you can have in your job right now. I'm happy we're still recording. No, <laughs> everything I say is usable. Don't worry. <laughs> that, that is what we're finding as well. My advice to the portfolio is to be responsibly aggressive. Yes, you need to preserve your capital. 
yes, you need to cut spend and you need to raise when you can and you need to make company more efficient. And that's always true, by the way. You should have been efficient before also. But I think you can also invest in getting great people who are going to be out there looking for things to do. And you should invest in your customers and in your product. And particularly, you should invest in making the product something that your customers can't live without. Because companies that get through a crisis stronger are companies that do something that is so important that the customer will still buy if it's a consumer or if it's a, a business, even when times are tough. And that's how you know that what you're doing is really valuable. Not when in great times, if you're a B2B company, in great times, when everybody's spending, when everybody, people don't care, that's not the real test. The real test is right now when you know boards are sitting and managements are sitting and they're looking at IT budget and they're saying, what are we going to cut? How do you make sure that you're not the thing that they cut? Because your product is so good that they just can't live without it. And, and I think that's the number one thing that everybody should be caring about right now. Our listeners are GPs, right? Translating that to your, you know, <laughs> what you're doing inside Target right now. Does that translate to saying, okay, guys, just go through our portfolio, figure out exactly whether they're solving something that really, really is needed, or if it was maybe one of the things that we maybe shouldn't have invested in, because now that we're getting into a time where everyone is going to be rationalizing their spend, then this company is likely not to perform as well. Is that what you're saying to your fellow partners? Guys, we probably should have a critical look at our portfolio and reevaluate whether we should double down or say goodbye to some of them based on that criteria of being absolutely important to your customers. I think right now we're, at least I'm trying to spend time with my portfolio companies to think about how they can become more valuable to their customers. This is exactly the moment where as an investor, you need to put your sleeves up and sort of go and work with the company and try to help them sort of help CEOs, help entrepreneurs work through how they can become a must-have for their customers. And by the way, also, of course, how can they make their business more efficient without killing it on the other end? It's very easy to cut and cut and cut, but you have to remember, you have to get out the other side of this stronger. I think a lot of people are going to hopefully get back to basics, right? I think a lot of the perks always go away with these crises and then it's not a bad thing. There were a lot of excesses in our industry, right? Obviously. Yeah. And small, most of the managers we talk to on this show are, given that it's Europe, it's very early stage focused, right? You guys are one of the few that are investing in the later stages. I'd love to hear you tell us a bit about how you go through your, your portfolio reviews because many of the early stage managers right now are saying, well, you know, there's some time until we need to exit. So many of the foundational elements are, will still be there. How are you thinking about late stage deals that you were projecting to exit in a year or two? You know, again, I think it's, it's always very hard to really predict an exit to that level of granularity. There's later stage companies, companies that are closer to being businesses. That everything I said, I think is even more true to them. You have to, first of all, make sure that you're running your company the right way right? That you're running your company responsibly. And then you have to go into unit economics. You have to go into product. Again, you have to make sure that your customers really need what you're doing and that you're really investing in the customer right now. This is a time to invest in your customer. It's a time to invest in the product and technology to make it better and better, to really put money behind. I'm always, when I've been in crises with companies, I've been very careful not to cut R&D and not to cut product. Because I think that's, in the end, the one place where you should always be investing in throughout a crisis. So we try to sit with CEOs and make sure that, first of all, they can extend their runway and get runway. 
but then they're still investing in the right things. And all these companies have become growth companies. They are real businesses. I think if I look at our portfolio, they're all companies that have long-term existence. At least that's how we feel, obviously. So if you think these companies have long-term existence, this should be a blip. Yeah. How are you thinking about these companies that you are then both repricing internally, but you can also see, okay, we need to get money into this company, but oftentimes that happens on different terms than, than the last round when crises hit. How, what is your position on that? Is that good practice in that, well, you guys have a uh, fiduciary duty to your LP, so of course you will go in and negotiate for as good terms as possible, or do you think that ah, that's actually a malpractice and it'll come hit you in the back in the long end? A lot of it has to do with how you priced your company in the good times, right? If the company was priced responsibly in 2020, 2021, then you'll have much less of a problem going into 2022, 2023. So I think companies that were reasonably priced, that weren't sort of forward trading very aggressively, have a much easier time. As it goes for private company pricing, you know, it's it's uh, very misleading. I think people have come a, a bit addicted to this concept of constant fundraising, constant up rounds, and, you know, unrealized uh, returns. In the end, unrealized returns are just that, right? They're, they're paper returns. They're here to data. The question is what happens when the company is sold or goes public, right? That's The question is what happens when the return is Christmas. So I think having a down round in a difficult time and re-establishing pricing, to me, is not a disaster. People are very scared of it, found it, but I, think, I don't think you should be scared of it. It actually sometimes helps. It helps to reestablish pricing for employees or so option pricing and makes the company more streamlined. It makes it, I think what some founders try to do in some funds is they don't want to drop the headline pricing because they don't want to go back to their uh, employees, their LPs. They don't want to get, they were a unicorn. They don't want to go back to being all those uh, things that are, a lot of them are ego yeah. and they put structure on top. And again, in my experience, aggressive structuring almost never ends well for anyone. No, exactly. So you'd actually rather take down the valuation, but don't put in all kinds of ratchets and so on, preferential shares and all that. There is a limited amount of structure that almost always happens and it's okay on the very late end of deals. That's fine. But once you get into this aggressive 2x liquidation preference, 3x, it's just better to reprice the company to a price that everyone's comfortable with. Yeah. And and yes, it might be unpleasant, yeah. but long term it's going to benefit everyone. We'll need to learn that's the way the world works. You being a multi-stage firm, you have a big range of deal size, of first ticket size, and how you keep the mental flexibility for that inside of the firm. But I'd love to hear that as well. But what I'd love to also ask you is when you're you're telling us that now you're focused on spending time with your portfolio companies, you know, you have very completely different profiles of companies within that portfolio? And how do you as a company and from a firm management perspective, keep that mental flexibility to serve these different companies in the best way you can? So first of all, I think we are a partnership, right? And every partner has his or her portfolio companies. So the group of people that they work with, the boards they work with, it's to me a very personal one-on-one relationship sometimes being venture investor. I think in the end, it's a lot of it is not about uh, sitting, we're not we don't sit with models. And, you know, I just admitted before we started recording that I didn't have Excel on my computer for a few months. So we're not like a great, I'm not a great modeler. I think a lot of it is about working with the founder through his or her thought process. How do they, her, their mental sort of state, how do they deal with what's going on? We also try as a firm to have a very open architecture and sort of try to reduce egos internally and let founders talk to as many people within 
our pretty significant team. So we try to get everyone to know everyone. We, we try to put the founders together with our team as much as we can. And I think that helps get different expertise to people in different moments in time. So you can find someone in our team that can help you think through or work through whatever I think you're trying to do. That's a lot of the way that I think we're spending time right Just, again, working with companies. And by the way, also working on fundraising and on other things companies need to do. Can you shed some light on your decision-making process as well? Because I think that's super interesting to understand because it's, you know, from a portfolio support perspective, it's simpler, in my opinion, at least. You have more kind of people are more focused on specific deals. But on the deal-making side, how does that work inside of Target? I use the carrot cards. If the black prince comes up, it's a deal. If That's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> it's good to hear that you have the same process as we do. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we believe in the, we have a very, we believe in that, the tea leaves. The tea leaves are how we do the follow-ons. Yeah, nice. <laughs> we have a couple of businesses, right? We have the early stage business. Yeah. Uh, we are in our core early stage investors, right? All of us people are, people who start in the early stage side. So we look at team, TAM, product market fit, that's our sort of mental framework. And we look at that cross everything we do. But when you do early stage investing, I think particularly as you go to seed, a lot of it is very, again, one-on-one. I think too much group thinking sometimes hurts decision-making in the earlier stages. I think it's just a lot of it's about conviction. And the thing to remember long-term about early stages, your downside is, is capped, your upside is not. So it's okay to make mistakes. You have to make uh, some mistakes. Actually, if you're not making enough mistakes, you're not taking bold enough uh, chances. And I think a lot of the great, great deals that we did on the early stage side have been very contentious inside even the partnership. You know, uh, Rapid, which is one of our best portfolio companies, um, is a deal that we originally refused. And as Ari, the CEO, uh, likes to say, he has that rejection email from (laughs) us uh, hanging in his office. And then, I mean, we kept working with the company, came back, and my partner, Mike, sort of pushed it and decided that he has enough conviction to do it, despite the fact that maybe the bare facts weren't there. So early stage is very, I think, one person that has conviction and then maybe from the group, at least a a sanity check. He has to go through some sanity check where the group maybe asks questions, but then if somebody wants to do it. I think as you go to growth stage, there's a lot more thought process put into it, a lot more thesis, a lot more sort of group thinking, trying to analyze the situation, trying to get more and more vantage points into the conversation. It's much more complicated deals to do. Having said that, I think in our business, a lot of the money is made and lost in the follow-on investment. That's where money is made and lost. And I think we put, again, try to put a lot of energy on deciding how we follow on to companies and who do we double down on, triple down. That's a lot of our thought processes around actually that part of the deal cycle. But I guess that's also the part that these days with the market like it is, most VC firms are actually assessing and analyzing and thinking about. Would you agree with that? I would. (laughs) But again, these are huge, huge cycles, right? 10-year cycles. We try to be consistent. And I think we will get to an investment pace this year that is not far from where we were last year. In initial investments and in follow-ons, we will try to keep a very similar pace. So you need to work through the cycles. The fact that there's an external cycle, you need to work through the cycles. You can't jump up in the peaks and then drop in the... First of all, because a lot of the returns is actually investing in the downturn. So you have to, I think, invest through the cycle and you have to continue to support your winners through the cycle as well. And I think that's what we intend to do. So just continue investing throughout whatever the cycle is and 
you know, you don't ignore it. You readjust yourself a little bit, but a cycle shouldn't change your strategy. If you have a real thesis behind what you're doing and you believe in an industry, you believe in the long-term viability of the companies you're investing in, then a one, two, three-year cycle just shouldn't matter. Speaking of one, two, three-year cycles and something that I, at least to my level of understanding, would say, yeah, this type of vehicle is is pretty affected by is of course, specs. I'm super curious to hear how has this affected your SPAC strategy because you recently launched Target Global Acquisition 1, which was your first SPAC. We had great timing, impeccable timing for the SPAC. We spent a lot of time thinking about SPACs and how we look at the market. Our belief is that it is a viable product, viable sort of for the future. It was extraordinarily hyped, <laughs> blew out of proportion. A lot of the reasons that now SPACs are uh, where they are is, first of all, they were all priced in the height, height, height of the market, right? And I think there was a lot of irrationality in that market. And I think there were a lot of deals that happened that just shouldn't happen. They're not a good fit for a SPAC. But I think if you put the right type of deal into a SPAC and price it well, and you use the advantages that a SPAC gives you, the ability to price early and the ability to use the structure to your advantage, and you don't try to do an IPO, just price it at a premium in order to get someone to pay for the sponsor promote, then you can do great things with SPACs. Just the market has to learn. And I think that's why we went in when we did, although we knew it was a late, you know, it was already clear where the cycle was going. We said, okay, we want to work against the grain. We want to try to do something that's a little different. And um, we want to try to see if this is a business that we can do long-term. I'm going to risk being a bit redundant here, Shmuel, but, but I'm doing it because I honestly think that in Europe, Many emerging managers have not yet fully understood <laughs> what a SPAC is, why should you use it, and how those dynamics work. So I'd love to ask you, could you give us the quick rundown of your view and why you guys did it? What made you go that route? I mean, I think a SPAC allows you to have a longer conversation and a longer relationship with the company that you're despacking. So I think, and that means that it's a better fit for a more complex situation. So for a situation where an IPO would be difficult because of cap table or because of over leverage or because you want to do something that requires a little bit more mind share from investors than a roadshow of, you know, 30-minute conversation gives you. And I think that's what a SPAC is actually useful for. I don't think for a high-flying venture-backed business that, you know, has good brand recognition, can easily go public without the aid of a SPAC, I don't know if it makes sense. So I think it's more appropriate for more complicated situations. And I think as a sponsor, you want to say, okay, here's the value that I can add to this business long-term. So not being a financial intermediary, but being a real partner that continues with the company. I think we are a bit tight on time here. So we're going to move to the final segue of our episodes, which is the quick fire round, Shmuel. And the quick fire round is a set of quick answer questions, 30 to 60 seconds each. Are you ready? I am. Awesome. So the first one is quite broad. And the question is, what vertical sector or technology are you excited about that most people around you don't really care that much about? I think I'm spending a lot of time right now on veterinary and pet care. It's super interesting. Hasn't had a lot of money, enough money invested into it. There's secular trends that, particularly in the US, but also in Europe, that sort of are supporting more and more spend. And I think think it's a very interesting category together with actually uh, outpatient care for, you know, human outpatient care, which again, not enough money has been invested in it. 
the doctor that you go to today works uh, very similarly to 30, 40, 50 years ago, maybe with a computer on his table, but not more than that. And I think there's huge advances that you can make there. And it's very interesting business. I love that second part of the answer. I started in the life science sector, so I find that super cool. Second question of the quick fire round is, what would be your top advice for emerging managers out there in Europe who are listening to you right now and thinking, well, I'd love to build what Schmoo built. It's really an endurance game. Also mentally, it takes a long time. You have to work through the cycles. Venture is sort of the, it's not a get rich quick scheme. It might be a get rich slow scheme, but it <laughs> takes time to build. You have to keep on the course for a very long time. It's an endurance game. Third and final question of the quick fire round is what can we expect in the future from Schmoo? First of all, I'm going to install Excel back on my computer. That's number one. <laughs> we as Target, we were going to try to continue to do what we've done for the past uh, eight years, right? We're going to continue to find great founders and back them early, back them throughout their life cycle, back them throughout market cycles. That's what I'm passionate about. That's what I love doing. I love working with smart people and I love the opportunity to sort of take a new industry every two, three years and dive into it and really understand it. So uh, I think you can expect uh, more of the same, hopefully um, more of the same also. Thank you so much for joining us. We had a bunch of technical issues through this. So uh, I can only say thanks a lot for showing great endurance. That <laughs> seems to be the thing that's needed right now. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, the gods of IT were not with us, but we managed. Yeah, uh, we did. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of The European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love our show, share it with your friends and join us in the EU VC community syndicates at theeuropeanvc.com. This episode is part of a special series on navigating the current market and is sponsored by Isma Capital, one of Europe's leading fund of funds. We thank Isma for their support in making this episode possible and being a strong supporter of the EU VC community. If you haven't yet connected with them, make sure to do so. You couldn't wish for a better LP partner.